Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming on this beautiful, balmy Sunday morning to our church and uh, braving all of the weather. We are grateful. I had I uh, got to spend a, a little bit of time with a couple of friends of mine yesterday who, over the last uh, year, a couple of years, they've moved here from out west. One, one came here from Louisiana. Another one came here from uh, having lived in uh, uh, Amarillo, Texas. And uh, both of them were saying, well, this is our first snow that we've experienced. And, and, you know, it came all of a sudden and we didn't know it was coming. I said, let me tell you something. I said, if they predict it's going to snow, just go on about your business. It's not going to snow. When they don't predict it's going to snow, that's when you need to be concerned. And so I think everybody was a little caught off guard by by that yesterday, but boy, wasn't it beautiful to see it come down. And so, you know, it's not something that we get to experience very often here. Uh, and so it was truly a beautiful uh, display of, of God's creation, quite frankly, and uh, I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, but I am really glad that it cleared off enough where we could be back together this morning, and I'm glad that you're here. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Today we are going to continue in this new sermon series that we began last week entitled Follow Me, in which we are going to kind of systematically work our way through uh, passages in the Gospels in which Jesus says that, in which Jesus looks at someone or talks to someone and tells them to follow him. And if you'll, the first sermon in our series last week, we looked at at what it means to follow Jesus. And, and, and we looked at that from Matthew chapter 4 uh, with a call of those four fishermen, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and also Matthew 9, where Matthew himself was called to follow Jesus. And, and based upon what we study, particularly in Matthew chapter 4, we recognize that the call to follow Jesus really is a call that is a call to repentance. It is a call that that, that calls us to repent and to, to change the direction from which we have been going and to turn and, and begin to follow him in a new direction. It's also, we recognize, a, a call that necessitates radical obedience because all four of those disciples, in addition to Matthew, immediately left what they were doing to follow Christ. And so it's a, it's a call of, of, uh, of repentance and also radical obedience. And then based particularly upon what we looked at with, with Matthew, it's a call that's extended to even the most despised outcast. Matthew was a tax collector, and we know that they were not very well liked in the Jewish society. And so we, we recognize that it was a call to repentance, radical obedience, and to the most despised outcast. And here's what I want you to know. Based upon what we saw last week, that was not just a call that was relegated to them. It is a call that is still valid even today. It wasn't just true for those first disciples, it's true for us. In fact, the application of what we learned last week simply is this, that the call to follow Jesus still requires sinners and outcasts like you and me, men, women, boys and girls who are separated from God and, and under his condemnation because of our sin. Well, it's a call that requires us to respond in faith, just as those first disciples did by repenting of our sins and obediently surrendering everything to his lordship. And so that's where the series began last week. It was by looking at what the call to follow Jesus is. Now today I want us to look, uh, begin looking of what will next be over the next few weeks, uh, a few different passages that will reveal to us what the call of Jesus demands. 
We looked at what it, what it is. Now I want us to consider what it demands of us. And we actually might even uh, phrase it in the form of a question if we were on Jeopardy. We would phrase it in the form of a question. What will it cost me to follow Jesus? That's really the question that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wanted to investigate in his classic Christian piece entitled The Cost of Discipleship. There's a line in that book that really, I believe, serves as its central theme. Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, it is that premise concerning the high cost of following Jesus that causes Bonhoeffer to rail against what he describes as cheap grace. He says cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. It is grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross. It's grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Consequently, Bonhoeffer declares that the only grace that is offered in the gospel Contrary to cheap grace, he says, is costly grace. He writes this, he says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly, he writes, because it, it calls us to follow. It is a grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. And above all, he says, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. So it is the cost of discipleship. It is the demand the demands of following Jesus that we must consider. And that's the subject of our text this morning here in Luke chapter 9. And what we see is that Jesus encounters three would-be disciples, three would-be followers of him, and he demands that they consider the cost of following him. Begin reading with me there in verse 57 of Luke chapter 9. Hear the word of God. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are grateful for this place that we are able to come to today. Grateful to be able to open your word, word that you authored by your Holy Spirit, word that is inerrant, that is complete total truth, and completely trustworthy, and that we can absolutely go to and know that it will tell us exactly how things are. It will reveal you 
to us and it reveals very clear things about ourselves to us. So I pray that as we have our Bibles open in front of us today and as we peer into your word that your Holy Spirit will be given the freedom to speak through the word that you authored to our souls so that we may hear you. Then I pray that your Holy Spirit will be able to bring conviction into our hearts and that we would not push against that and that we would not rail against it, but Lord, that we would receive it as those who truly desire to be conformed into the image of your Son. I pray today for your Spirit to move in our congregation and that, Lord, that you would, you would have us to be people that were, have open minds and open hearts to what you would want to say to us. And that through all these things, we pray that you would be honored and glorified. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, what I've just read for you here at, at the end of chapter 9 uh, is, is a, a chapter. Chapter 9 itself is just a, a chapter in which we find Jesus very busy ministering in and around the Sea of Galilee. Luke tells us that great crowds sought Jesus um, while he preached about the kingdom of God, while he healed many of their physical illnesses and diseases. It's in this chapter we read Luke's version of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And then following that demonstration of feeding the 5,000, we read of, of Peter's landmark confession in verse 20 that Jesus is the Christ of God. Chapter 9 is also a turning point chapter in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 22 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Based upon his declaration, we see that from this point forward, Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. In fact, down in verse 53, you will read those exact words. His face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So appropriately, in the middle of chapter 9, there in verses 23 through 26, Jesus sets forth the demands of what it will mean for others to come and to follow him on the road that he is taking. Specifically, he says it will require others to take up their cross. It will require others, if they want to save their lives, they will necessarily have to lose their own. And the Lord willing, we're going to come back and look at those words more detailed in a later sermon. But... For the moment, what we realize is that here in Luke's gospel, for the first time, the disciples are confronted with the reality that suffering will be required of every follower of Jesus. The cost of following Jesus has really now taken on a whole new meaning. And so with that revelation of Jesus hanging in the background, we come to this passage that I've read for you earlier passage that's really broken down into three different little vignettes, three different little stories that Jesus has these encounters with these would-be disciples. And, and, and I call them would-be followers of, of Christ because we're not told that any of them actually did follow Jesus, especially after they were laid out in front of them the full cost of what discipleship entailed. We don't see that they actually follow through in their, their call and in their volunteerism. The first conversation occurs with a man who comes up to Jesus and volunteers to be someone who will follow him wherever he, he goes. And that happens in verses 57 through 58. And based upon what Christ says back to this man, we learn, we learn something important. In fact, the first thing that we learn, I've included for you there on your outline, is simply this. Following Jesus demands unconditional trust. 
Following Jesus demands unconditional trust. Luke tells us that as Jesus walked down the countryside, there was plenty of people who were coming up and following him. It wasn't just the 12 disciples. And from time to time, various people would come along and, and engage Jesus in conversation as they were walking. And a man was obviously moved by Jesus' words and by his vision. And, and he says to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And I've often wondered if right about here, if Jesus' 12 disciples didn't say, hot dog, we got us another one. Man. We've, we've, just, we've just grown from 12 to 13, and we're going we're gonna to keep getting them like this. I, I, I don't know how they responded. I know how Jesus responded. He looked at the man square in the eyes and said, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, to be honest with you, that, that reply is a little enigmatic. I mean, it's, what, what is he meaning by that? That's a little... Weird. Um, what, why does he say that to this man at this point? Well, in response to the man's volunteering to become a follower, Jesus immediately challenges him with the cost of, of what it's going to take to do that. And, and I believe that Jesus challenges this man in the exact same point that most of us live. He challenges him at the level of his comfort and the level of his possessions. One preacher has put it this way. He says, most of us, talking about you and I, most of us work a lifetime to acquire a comfortable lifestyle. How that is defined may vary somewhat, but for most of us, it involves a home, a job, and certain possessions. Jesus, however, tells us here that even the most basic needs that we think we have must be sacrificed in order to follow him. And while it's true that Jesus has not required all of his followers to be homeless, he certainly sets the example for us. In other words, this man says, we are called to always choose obedience to him over our own possessions and comfort. Philip Ryken has put it a little more succinctly. He says, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to be willing to give up everything, even the comforts of home. That's why I say that in this first conversation that Jesus has with this would-be disciple, we learn that the cost of following Jesus demands unconditional trust. Unconditional trust. It tells us that our faith cannot rest in our circumstances and even more specifically it cannot rest in our possessions and in our comfort Jesus had none of those things scripture teaches us that he left all of the splendors of heaven in order to be born in a cattle stall because there was no room for him in the inn in Bethlehem Furthermore, even though he had been raised in Nazareth and, and he had, had been lived there among those who were there, he experienced rejection by those who were from his hometown to the degree that they even tried to kill him. And in the context of the previous paragraph, here in Luke chapter 9, we realize that even the Samaritans rejected him and would not allow him to stay in their own towns. And of course, we know that he would ultimately be rejected by the religious leaders once he got to Jerusalem. He had no place to call home. He had no place to call his own. He had no people who wanted to claim him. And his point to this man who volunteered to come alongside and to follow him was that 
if he wanted to be one of his disciples, such things would happen to him just as it had happened to Jesus. Now listen, Jesus was not complaining. He was simply stating the facts. He had left heaven's glories and given up everything to come be our Savior. And now he simply states that those who want to follow him must be willing to do the same. Brothers and sisters, we cannot miss this. This hits us right, as the common phrase says today, this hits us right in the fields. This gets in and begins to rattle the pans and, and rattle all of the things that are going on in our everyday life. Now listen, does this mean that we're not allowed to own things? Does this mean we're not allowed to own a house? We can't have stuff? We can't have a home? No, by God's generous grace, he often blesses us with material possessions that we may use those things for his glory. But we must never allow those things to become a distraction and a hindrance to our true discipleship. The Lord willing, we're going to look at a passage that illustrates that in the coming weeks. Courage when, when Jesus interacts with a man that we know as the rich young ruler. The Bible says that Jesus called him to come and follow him to sell everything he owned. But the Bible says that the man went away sorrowful because he was a man of many possessions. In other words, he was unwilling to walk away from those possessions in order to follow Jesus. What we realize both in that passage and back here in this one in Luke chapter 9 is that Jesus is not calling disciples to come to a life of luxury, but rather he is calling disciples who are willing to sacrifice everything for him. And this is where the rubber really begins to meet the road with many of us who would follow Jesus. It means that we have to ask ourselves in whom or in what do we trust? I'm reminded of the words of the psalmist who wrote in Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Listen, to follow Christ means that you unreservedly and unconditionally place your confidence and your faith in him. And when you do that, you can declare just as the psalmist declares in Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have become our dwelling place. And listen, when the Lord becomes your dwelling place, then, then you can leave everything in order to follow Jesus and you'll still be at home. No matter where you go, you'll still be at home. Why? Because the Lord is your dwelling place. So that's the first thing that we have to learn from this text. It is that to follow Jesus demands unconditional trust. But notice the next conversation that Jesus has in verses 59 through 60. We learn that to follow Jesus demands undivided affection. Undivided affection. Notice that another man comes up to Jesus. And rather than volunteer to become a follower of Christ, the Lord himself issues the same command that he gave to Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew. He says, follow me. Now let me remind you, when Jesus issued that command to those guys, the Bible says they immediately left their nets, left their boats, left their tax booth, and they followed Jesus. Not so here. Rather, the man replied back to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a valid request. Uh, certainly, we would sympathize with him, with his need and desire to go take care of something so necessary and personal as burying a parent. But Jesus doesn't come across so sympathetic to him. In 
fact, he says to the man, let the dead bury their own dead. That's a rather terse response from the man that we commonly refer to as being the most compassionate one and the most loving Savior. To hear him say that confronts us. So it seems like a, a very terse and insensitive response to someone who's grieving the death of a father. But is it? Many scholars have taken up this issue and they've provided what I believe to be a valid argument that would expose what's really going on in this interchange between this man and Jesus. See, the point is made that, that the man's dad had not yet died, but was in fact still alive. After all, why if the man's father was dead, was he out following Jesus here on the outskirts of Samaria? Why was he there and not back at home taking care of the issues surrounding the death of his father? You see, according to Jewish law, when a person died, the body was to be buried almost immediately. So for this man to ask to be able to go back and bury his father really doesn't make sense in light of the context there. Rather, as it has been pointed out, what the man is asking Jesus is not to be able to go back and, and, and bury his father, but really to be able to go back and stay with his father until the man died. Perhaps the father was an old man by this time. Perhaps he was in, in failing health. Maybe he wasn't. Either way, when, when presented with the command to follow Jesus, this man entered into negotiations with Jesus. He wanted to negotiate his discipleship by delaying his obedience to Christ's command until he could honor his commitments to his family. And effectively, the man told the Lord that after his father passed, whenever that time would come, after his family commitments had ended, then he would come and follow Jesus. And Jesus told him, let the dead bury their own dead. James Boyce has noted that such a response was issued by Jesus in order to wake the man up to the reality of what he was doing. That, that he really needed to forget waiting for his father to die in order to be obedient to Christ's call upon his life. Boyce writes this, he says, Jesus was saying that the time to believe on him and become his disciple is right now. Discipleship is always a present obligation. We can never put it off and be in the will of God. That's why I say that to follow Jesus demands undivided affection. You see, if our allegiance and if our affection is divided, then we will always be tempted to look for ways to delay our obedience to following the Lord with our whole hearts. And while this concept may be difficult for us to hear and consider, we must remember that Jesus is laying out plainly what it costs to follow him. And he is clearly declaring the demands of our discipleship. He does the same thing later in Luke's gospel in chapter 14. Jesus confronts those who had gathered around him in that moment, once again with the very difficult demands of what it means to follow him. In verse 26 of chapter 14, Jesus addresses his, his words not just to his immediate disciples, but to all of those who were considering following him. And he says this in Luke 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate 
his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is certainly graphic language. It's troubling language by its very definition. It is a classic example of the hard sayings of Jesus. In effect, Jesus states that if you want to become one of his disciples, one of his followers, you will have to hate your family and even yourself. Otherwise, you cannot be his disciple. Now, without even addressing the most difficult part of that verse, we can get the picture of what Jesus is saying. His point is simply that discipleship is primarily and fundamentally a call to allegiance. In other words, he wants folks to know right up front that to be his disciple, you must place him above everything else, including your family, including your own self. For a disciple, nothing and no one else can take the place of Jesus as being first place in their life. What does he mean when he says we have to hate, though? What does it mean to hate our families? Well, make no mistake about it. This is a strong image that Jesus is using. But it is not a call to be insensitive, and it's not a call to leave feelings behind. He also says in other, in other places that we are to honor our father and mother. That's, that comes from the law, that we are to love those, even our own enemies. So what does he mean when he says hate here? Well, rather, Jesus is making a comparative statement. Comparatively speaking, Jesus says that our love for him must be so strong that any other love and any other affection that we have in our lives for anyone else has to pale in comparison. It has to come across as even in comparison it would look like hate. In a very different context, but yet very similar words, Jesus makes almost an identical declaration in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He says there, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The point that Jesus makes is that only when a person forsakes all others is he or she totally following Jesus. Otherwise, something else or someone else will have a greater pull on one's allegiances than Jesus does. And therefore, one can only become a true disciple of Jesus by renouncing all other loyalties. Now, family relationships come up again in the last vignette that we're about to read here and study. But before we get there, before we leave this second conversation that Jesus had with this would-be disciple, notice what he tells the man should be the most important thing in his life. His most important priority, Jesus says, he says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. In the next chapter, in chapter 10, Luke tells us that Jesus sent out 70 of his disciples to do exactly that. He sent them out into the towns and into the villages all around to proclaim the good news. And it was in sending them out that Jesus let them know just how important their calling was. In verse 2 of chapter 10, listen to what Jesus says. He says, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 
That is precisely what Jesus was doing with this would-be disciple back here in chapter 9. But this man did not have a wholehearted devotion to Jesus. And sadly, he would not be one of the laborers to go out in the harvest because he did not have an undivided affection for Jesus. So thus far, what we've learned is that following Jesus demands unconditional trust. It also demands an undivided affection. And then notice the third point on your outline. It also demands an unreserved response. An unreserved response. In the third vignette, Luke tells us that another man came up to Jesus and he volunteered to be one of his disciples, kind of like the first guy. He evidently must have heard the second guy saying, look, I want to go back and bury my father. And he probably heard what Jesus said. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I will follow you. Just let me first go back and say farewell to those who are at my house. Now, you can hear the difference in that, right? I mean, the third man was not wanting to go back home and stay for an indefinite period of time. He just simply wanted to go back home and be able to say goodbye to his loved ones, to his family. And we can probably understand that desire. And what's wrong with a farewell party? Jesus responds to him just as sharply as he did the first two. He tells him no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I struggled through this one. But let me, let me see if I can frame it in, in some different language that might help us be able to walk through and understand what's happening here. And, and it also gives you a little insight as to things that go on in the Dale household uh, throughout the week. Probably four or five times in the evenings every week, something along this line will be stated by that beautiful woman sitting right over there who is my wife, and our boss at home. And so she will finish up at the stove or wherever she is fixing, and then you will hear something. Okay, everybody, dinner is ready. I need someone to come and fix drinks. I need someone to set the table and get all the, all the stuff put on the table and to get the food over to the table. You need to wash your hands and get ready because dinner is ready to eat. Now, can you hear the urgency in that call? The time is now. The food's hot. It's ready to eat. She has an urgency there to feed her family. But this is the kind of conversation that begins to happen after that one takes place. All across the house, you might hear, well, can I finish doing this first? Can I just, can I finish doing that first or and the one that causes her head to about to explode. Can I finish watching this video first? In other words, there is an urgency on Caroline's part to get all of us around the table so that she can feed us. But that same urgency is not shared by the rest of the household. Listen, I think the exact same thing is happening right here in Luke's gospel. Once again, I point you to the fact that in the very next section of Luke, we read that Jesus is sending out all of these disciples into these various cities and towns. And he's sending them out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And he knew what he was about to do. But he also knew this. If this guy has to delay and say, can I just go back and tell my family goodbye? He was going to miss out on the commissioning service. 
again, I believe Jesus is clearly communicating to all of us who will come and follow him that his kingdom, his gospel must be the number one important priority in our lives. In fact, according to Michael Wilcock, when Jesus speaks of putting one's hand to the plow, what he's saying is that normal courtesies of family affection must give way to the overriding demands of the kingdom of God. And to illustrate his point, he, he uses a proverb. It's a, it's a proverb, a, an agrarian proverb. It's a proverb that comes from the field. It, it, it involves planting a crop. And I will readily admit, I have not planted a garden in literally years. But I do know this. If you want to get a row straight, you can't do it by turning and looking over your shoulder. You'll never plant a straight row by looking backward. The row will zigzag all over the countryside. And that's exactly what Jesus is wanting this man and he's wanting every single one of us to realize. You see, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus has set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He's, he's going directly to the cross. He knows what waits for him when he gets there. He knows that he will ultimately suffer and die when he gets there. And what is necessary is for him to communicate to those who would follow him, the fields are white unto harvest. And I need laborers who will go out into the fields to declare the good news. Laborers who will go out and reap the harvest that is ready those who keep looking over their shoulder and those who are constantly delaying their obedience will likely continue to find other excuses and continue to delay. In fact, J.C. Ryle has written, those who look back want to go back. And if we're looking back to anything in this world, we are not fit to be disciples. Philip Ryken has said this, if we keep second-guessing our decision for Christ or looking back fondly on our old affections, or even worse, going back to the places where we used to sin, then we will never get anywhere with Jesus. If we want to be his disciples, we need to follow him without any further delay. In his same commentary, Riken quotes John Wesley. John Wesley once gave some advice to some people who wanted to know how to follow Jesus. What does it mean? What are we supposed to do when we follow Jesus? And, and Wesley said this. He says, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as you ever can. And Philip Ryken added this. He said, and do all of that just as soon as you can. That's why I say that to follow Jesus demands an unreserved response. It demands an undivided affection and it demands our unconditional trust. And all of that leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The call to follow Jesus demands total commitment. It demands that the kingdom be the top priority of your life. Total commitment. The kingdom would be the top priority of your life. I naturally have an inquiring mind, and so when I finished my time looking at this passage, I, th I thought, I wonder what happened to those three guys. I wonder. I wonder if they repented. I wonder if, if Jesus' words turned them. Maybe they stopped the direction they were going, and they, they repented and began to follow. I wonder. Luke does not tell us. 
And then I thought, maybe he, maybe he didn't tell us because their stories are not what he wants us to focus on. I think what he really wants us to focus on is our story. The real question is, are we going to accept Jesus' demands? You see, the real issue here is not that we just look at their lives. The issue is, is that we turn and look at our own lives. Are we going to follow Jesus? And that, therefore, let me ask you this question. Have you committed, have you committed your wholehearted self to Jesus? Have you, have you followed him? And are you following him without delay wherever he leads you? Is his kingdom and is the gospel the top priority of your life? Are you sold out completely to him? Or if, you, if you're honest, are you, are you delaying, looking back over your shoulder, divided in your affection, concerned more about your security and your ease than you are about his kingdom? David Platt preached on this passage and he asked these questions. He says, will you choose comfort or the cross? Will you settle for maintenance or will you sacrifice for the mission that Jesus Christ has called you to? Will your life be marked by an indecisive mind or by an undivided heart for Christ? We don't know what these three would-be followers of Jesus chose to do, but we do know what Jesus did. Based upon the scriptures, we know that he resolutely kept going to Jerusalem and he set his face for that great city because nothing could keep him from his appointed destination and from his appointed mission. And he ultimately made it to Jerusalem and to the cross where he suffered and he died in order to free you and to free me from the penalty of our sins. But he did not remain dead. The Bible says that on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And he ultimately ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now sits and he intercedes for you and I. But it is also there that we learn that he had now calls you and me to go where he went. He calls you and I to make the same sacrifices that he made, to suffer the same kinds of losses that he suffered in order to advance his kingdom and in order for the gospel of the good news of his, of his, his death and his resurrection to be proclaimed to all men, women, boys, and girls everywhere. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem and God calls us to set our hearts on Jesus and to follow him no matter what the cost. And his call to follow him demands our total commitment and it demands that his kingdom be the top priority of our lives. Is that true for you? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Fathers, I've already prayed. I continue to pray now that you would allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us in these quiet moments that we have. As we contemplate the truth of your word, the demands that our discipleship, our following you requires of us. Speak to us. Convict us of areas in our lives where we've allowed other things 
to gain greater priority. Areas of my own life where I recognize that I have not allowed you to be first place. Areas where I have, just like these men, argued, but first let me do this or do that. Lord, allow your Holy Spirit to bring those convicting areas to our attention so that we might confess them to you and that we might repent of them and turn from them so that our lives might be found faithful in following you because we know that you have done everything that is necessary for us to to inherit eternal life. And it is because of what you have done that, that we owe everything to you. And yet the truth is so often we clutch to so many things that are so far less So I pray that that you would show us the error of our ways and that by your grace you would forgive us of those ways and and help us to, to change our pattern of behavior appropriately. Should there be one today who has never come to you and trusted you unconditionally, my prayer is that your Holy Spirit might bring conviction to him or her and that they might truly recognize that it is only through your sacrifice on their behalf that they can ever inherit eternal life and that you would bring them to a place of repentance and faith in you. I pray that that would occur. Let there be good conversation that would happen and allow your spirit to bring fruit. We pray all of these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.